Welcome to Community of Resistance, the podcast where I speak with people who do the work of resisting the empire to try to give people who are interested in activism and advocacy the kinds of practical tools they need to pursue justice and peace. I'm Derek Penwell, and on today's show, I'm lucky enough to be speaking to my friend Ben Carter. Ben's a lawyer here in Louisville who practices consumer law. He's also an op-ed columnist at the Louisville Courier-Journal, and his columns have appeared in USA Today. Between 2008 and 2010, Ben worked at uh, the Legal Aid Society and helped Jefferson County build an innovative countywide response to its foreclosure crisis. As a litigator, he's defended homeowners from foreclosure with novel, emerging, and bold advocacy. Bold disclosure, Ben is a member of the congregation I serve, so I've, I've known Ben for about 10 years or so, and I'm really excited to talk to him about how to write an op-ed. And he's one of the sharpest guys I've ever had the pleasure to work with. So welcome, my friend. Thanks very much, Derek. Thanks for giving me the chance to talk with you all. Absolutely. So before we, we get into uh, all, all that other stuff, t- tell me just a little bit about how you got started doing this kind of consumer advocacy work. Um, I got started the same way I, I got started with most things in my life, which is I, I backed into it accidentally and um, got a job working for the Legal Aid Society in Louisville not long after um, graduating from law school. And my job was funded by a grant that was supposed to um, help homeowners avoid sort of bait and switch tactics as they were buying their home. So I should say help prospective homeowners um, Mm -hmm. to to give a long answer to a short question. Basically, uh, housing advocates in Louisville in 2005 and 2006 had had recognized that there were a lot of uh, first-time homebuyers who were getting very questionable um, rates and, and questionable loans uh, foisted upon them uh, and, and subject to debate and switch tactics at the closing table, um, and it was too late to back out. And so they wanted to have a lawyer um, help them through the process so that, so that they wouldn't be um, preyed upon by uh, mortgage lenders. And I got started in that job in September of 2008, the same week that um, Lehman Brothers melted down. And suddenly my job switched from uh, helping people um, buy homes for the first time to helping those people who had, had bought homes in the past five or six years to keep their homes or get a loan modification or exit the exit the home gracefully if they weren't going to be able to maintain home ownership. So, um, so yeah, I got started thinking I was going to be doing one thing and ending up doing something uh, very different. But, um, but that start with Legal Aid, I will always be grateful to um, Jeff Bean and Stuart Pope for giving me that job because before I started there, consumer law wasn't even a, a thing that I had an idea existed. And um, now it's probably going to be the, the work of, of my life. So um, that's how I got started. So I didn't realize that, um, that consumer law was not on the list of things, possibilities for, for your vocation. But I know that there are a lot of people in Kentucky and particularly here in Louisville who are glad that, that you backed into it. The other thing I wanted to ask you uh, about was you do something that's really cool 
uh, at the office building that you've bought, you started a sort of a nonprofit collective. Could you tell me a little bit about that and why you thought that was something that was not, not, not only possible, but necessary? Well, again, it's, it's something that um, I sort of backed into. I, um, I bought a set of buildings. It's a, three buildings here in Smoketown, which is just south and east of, of downtown Louisville. And, and when I got the buildings, I, I expected to grow my law practice and, and have, you know, Ben Carter Law become a, a group of five or seven attorneys, you know, all working together on consumer law issues. And um, and what's happened instead is and I've, I've found a lot of people who are doing interesting work in, in all sorts of different areas office space and we're happy to rent that office space to them because um, it's nice to have good people uh, show up every day and, and share the space with. Uh, that's a that's a nice way of saying I haven't been able to grow my business as quickly or successfully as I thought I would and so I needed to scramble to find other people to help uh, support the finances around here. So uh, saying that it's a group of nonprofit uh, organizations is is a lot nicer than what it sometimes feels like, which is, you know, paying bills every month. <laughs> I, uh, I know, I know that that's a, that's a necessity, but, uh, but I also, I, I know that you, when you were thinking about doing it, felt like it was a pretty cool idea to have that kind of energy, uh, with creative, uh, justice minded people. Absolutely. Uh, it's been, it's been wonderful. I, I joke about it, but we have, um, we have nonprofits here who are working uh, uh, to in arts education and music education. Girls Rock Louisville and Rhythm Science Sound provide um, uh, uh, artistic outlets to teenage girls to support their um, self-esteem and and use you know being in a band every every summer uh, as a way of sort of talking with them about uh, those issues. And uh, Rhythm Science Sound does something called Mix Down Monday every every Monday, where they invite um, refugee kids into our space to uh, to work on their electronic music. And and uh, and if you can follow them on Instagram, Rhythm Science Sound. Uh, I love looking up on Monday and seeing all of these kids in our space. Um, you know, working on their Ableton uh, uh, machines and, and Macs and recording. Uh, recording their raps into uh, into their equipment, so it's great. But we've also got Define American, uh, a nonprofit working on um, advocating for undocumented people living in the U.S., along with a music booking company, an accountant, um, Don Howard, uh, who is here, uh, who splits her time between this and working for Dan Cannon, who's trying to get elected in Southern Indiana to Congress. So. You know, you never know who's going to show up day to day, but it's always nice to see people when you can bump into them. And um, what I like to say is we're 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 um, doing different things, but we're all sort of pulling in the same direction, is what it seems like. And so, hearing about what they're working on and what their challenges are, and, and um, getting to share some of my frustrations as I try to represent people in court uh, is a nice thing for sure. That's that's such a that's such a wonderful concept. Uh, I've just been uh, I've been really taken with it uh, since you talked to me about it. All right, let's change gears here a little bit and 
uh, let me ask you, how did you get started writing op-eds? Uh, you know, I've sort of been writing my whole life. Um, when I was in high school, I remember very clearly writing um, letters to the editor of the Ashland Daily Independent uh, in support of various causes. Yeah, I mean, really, I, the one that I remember, and I think I've, I've got a scan somewhere um, so that I there's no question about where I stood on the issue back in 1997 or something. But, uh, you know, they had one of these, you know, <laughs> tell us your thoughts um, uh, columns where, you know, you go out and survey four people at the Ashland Town Center Mall about a particular issue. And, and one of them was about gay marriage and, and one of the people quoted was, you know, I'm against it because what's next? Are you going to allow people to marry their dogs? And, you know, I wrote in, wrote in a letter to the editor about, about that. And, um, you know, my mom helped me uh, write it. I, I was old enough to write it myself, but I remember her, you know, helping me edit it and, and organize my thoughts and things like that. And so, so it was that sort of stuff when I was in high school. I remember I'm, I was like obnoxious enough to have read a statistic in the paper about how only 30% of Kentuckians voted in the last election. And I remember like writing, like I was like a pamphleteer. I wrote like this, like article about how you should, how everybody should vote. And I remember like leaving that on like windshields at the grocery store when I was in high school. And so like, that was like, um, the kind of obnoxious kid that I was and I guess I've never stopped being obnoxious because um, when I moved to Lexington to go to law school, the Herald Leader had a, a program called Community Columnists where, you know, you wrote a column once a month for 12 months uh, on a particular issue. And I, I applied to be a part of that and, and got it. Um, and so, you know, that was when I was, what, 23 or 24, um, writing once a month for the community. And then... When I moved to Louisville and was working at Legal Aid, I had the chance to write a few columns during the foreclosure crisis just about um, what was happening and what I thought were the causes and pushing back on some of the um, other messaging that I saw about irresponsible borrowers and things like that. And then uh, after, after Trump got elected, I wrote a few columns about um, what the Democratic Party in Kentucky needed to do now and um, after writing those columns, um, the the community columnist here in, in Louisville took a job where he had a conflict and, and he suggested that um, the courier hire me to write uh, once every three weeks. So that's what I do now. I, I uh, write a column for the Courier Journal once every three weeks. And, you know, uh, it, it makes scrolling through the news each day feel a little bit um, less hopeless because I'm not just reading all the bad news. I get to like sort of try to think about what I want to write about next and what the community needs to hear about. So, um, so if nothing else, you know, I'm not getting rich writing columns for the Courier Journal, but um, if nothing else, it does give a kind of um, structure and purpose to um, spending time on Twitter and, and reading the news. Right. Well, so, I mean, obviously you think that, writing op-eds is important. 
what, what kind of a difference do you think they make? Do, do, do you think that they can have an effect on public policy or are they more effective in uh, changing public opinion? If they can have an effect on public policy, like I haven't seen it from my calls, let me put it that way. No, no, no legislator has called me up and said, damn, I was going to vote one way, but now I'm going to vote another um, uh, based on what you said. So, so that's not really what my columns do. I, I, um, I think most of my columns, and I've written enough of them now uh, for The Courier that I think they do different things week to week, but I think most of, of my columns are are giving people who already agree with me on public policy outcomes another um, arrow in their quiver in terms of how they can talk about or think about the issue with their friends. And and so, for example, I've, two of the columns that I'm most proud of are, are two that introduced ideas that I learned about in, in college and law school and, and then talk about issues of public policy today through those lenses. So one, one was about the tragedy of the commons, uh, which is a, a concept, an economic concept, really, that's had a lot of traction in, in um, environmental policy. But, but it, it essentially stands for the notion that when you have a common, common property that is available to everyone to use, you have everyone's incentives are to overuse that piece of common property for their own ends. And, and nobody's doing anything wrong in that, in a sense, because everybody's trying to get their sheep to be, you know, on that land and, and graze it is the, is the common example of, of the tragedy of the commons. But if left to our own devices in using common property, that property will be abused over time. And, and so really what it is is a pretty salient argument for um, agreeing upon regulations for how we're all going to use these commonly held um, spaces. And, and in the column, what I tried to do was expand people's idea of not only like explain the theory, but expand what those spaces are beyond just, you know, our national park system or our national lands to um, cyberspace, to the, to our roadways, to our, um, to our social media presences so that we detoxify the notion of regulation somewhat. Um, Which is important right now. Super important. I mean, I, I just think, and, and so that was one of the columns that I think I, I, I was really successful at, you know, I think, I think a lot of people would agree that that you know the Environmental Protection Agency has an important role to play in protecting our our waterways and our air and, and things like that. But but in giving them that sort of structure in terms of the tragedy of the commons notion, you know, it get, helps them give a language to what they um, what they may have already believed. And frankly, I think that's some of the best writing I've ever been exposed to is like, for example, when you read Wendell Berry, you know, I, every time I read one of his essays, I'm like, I always felt that way, but I never had the words for it. And, right. and that seems like a revelation and a gift in and of itself when you can give words to, to people's unspoken beliefs. So, so that was one. And then I wrote a column about 
a concept in, in uh, the law called the veil of ignorance, which is um, just basically a, a notion about how you decide what's fair in society. So um, mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily think that that I'm, you know, making changing public policy or, or changing people's opinions as much as I am sort of helping people frame what they may are the notions on a gut level that they may already have. I think I think some of the other things that I do with my columns are raise awareness or educate about sort of backwater issues. So because I'm a consumer lawyer, I know like more than I ever expected to about tax liens on property here in in Louisville and in Kentucky and the problems of of selling that public tax debt to private tax collectors. I know a lot about mm. payday lending and the student debt crisis, and those are just things that like don't get a lot of coverage uh, in in the mainstream media, so to speak, because you know Trump's Trump's tweets suck up a lot of oxygen, but yet you know the the, sure. the problems that most people are having are with not being able to get their credit report. Uh, to be accurate or struggling being in the cycle of predatory debt or um, not being able to discharge their student loans um, in bankruptcy. So, so giving people an intellectual framework to think about issues, uh, bringing backwater issues a little bit to the forefront. And then frankly, like just one of the things that I think about when I write columns is I sort of want to create a record I alluded to this earlier. I'm really proud of the fact that like there's a letter to the editor in in the record back in like 1995 or 96 when gay marriage was not polling very high uh, back then. And it certainly wasn't polling very high in Ashland, Kentucky. And um, (laughs) I mean, you you preached in Middlesbrough, so you understand uh, back in that time. It was not not a popular topic and um, or a popularly held belief. And, and I'm really proud of the fact that there's a record in place of where I stood on that issue. And so like some of the things that I wrote right after um, Trump got elected was were things that were for public consumption, but they were also to sort of commit me to a specific position uh, in that I want I want everyone to know where I stood on, yeah. on a particular issue, maybe at a time when it wasn't popular or easy to say. Yeah, I've you know I've I've often said that I was born in the mid '60s, and uh, my father was a minister. And of course, at that time, there were uh, protests about Vietnam. There was the civil rights movement going on, and. I don't remember ever hearing about that from my father in church. Not that he had opinions about it, but I didn't know exactly what they were. I've said I don't want my kids to wonder what their dad was doing when, you know, people were being ripped from their families and deported or, you know, things like that. I, I do think that sort of putting a flag in the ground on these issues is is an important thing, not just for now, but for for the, the, the kind of legacy that you leave. Yeah, I mean, I think if there, you and I can worry about a lot of things um, about whether or not we're actually affecting public policy and things like that. I, I don't think that one of our fundamental concerns needs to be um, any ambiguity about where we stood on certain issues. Yes. At this point. Yeah. Very little ambiguity <laughs> to be had. Yeah. 
All right, so let, let me ask you this. Say somebody was interested in writing an op-ed. What, what is something that you think it would be really important for them to know, but that they might not, not occur to them that's, that it's uh, relevant? Mm-hmm. Is there a practical kind of tip that you, you could give? Yeah. I, I mean, I think there are two ways of coming at, you know, somebody who wants to write an op-ed. Either either it's somebody who doesn't normally write an op-ed but, but has one particular thing that they want to say um, about an issue. Right. And, and that, you know, that's sort of what commonly happens is there's an issue that they have domain expertise in, whether it's tax cuts or um, environmental policy or whatever, and, and um, they just feel like they've got – they have to say something, right? And so – Um, So that's one. And then there are other people who are probably walking around who are saying, I know I've got something to say um, or I have a particular viewpoint, but it's on a lot of different things. Maybe it's just this general notion that um, that they should be more vocal or and I try to stay away from the word should in my life, but that they want to be more vocal, that they would like to leave a record or um, write about current events in a more deliberate way than, you know, responding to tweets or something like that. I'm not denigrating that kind of interactions or anything like that. I'm just saying if someone wants to put together 750 words on something, it's, it requires a little bit more infrastructure than, um, than having a Twitter account. And so what, what I would say is, what I do, and I do this in all areas of my life, is I carry a notebook everywhere I go because the time where a good idea for a column hits you is not going to be when you sit down at your computer to write a column. It's going to be when you're trying to talk to your kid at a red light or or something like that in the car or um, as you walk into the office, you'll see something or hear something on the news and say, oh, that's an interesting um, thing. And, and you really want to be able to capture that idea at that time. And then, you know, trans- what I do is I, I capture those ideas in a notebook and then I keep a running list of column ideas um, in, in my computer so that, uh, and, and often they're combined with, you know, links to other stories. And, and so, David Sparks, a lawyer in uh, California and um, famous podcaster uh, and writer, has this idea called Cooking Ideas, where, you know, he has ideas for books, ideas for podcasts, ideas for lawsuits that he's involved in, um, in terms of representing someone not as a litigant himself. But the notion is that you want to have a system in place where you can have an idea, you can keep thinking about that idea, you can turn it over in your head, you can gather materials, um, web links and, and research and things like that, and just let it sort of marinate. Because I find that the longer you let something roll around in your head, or one of the ways that I think about it sometimes is you're turning a kaleidoscope and, and seeing different ways that all of those um, different beads that you've collected fit together, then the actual writing of the column becomes very easy if you have two or three ideas that you need to put together in interesting and new ways, whether it's two studies that, that relate to something that you want to talk about in the news or, you know, um, two 
to quotes that you gathered that that you want to discuss the grammar of the quotes and what they say about our poli- political discourse. So, so I think that's that's sort of what I would recommend for somebody who's thinking what I'd like to do is write a column. If you want to write a column or be more vocal, really invest in having a system in place to honor the the little sparks of creativity and ingenuity that that you have and don't trust yourself to remember it because it's a good idea. Some people can do that, but if I don't write it down, it's gone. And so that's what I do. That's sort of my process. And again, I would say sort of like when you show up to an event with a camera in your hand, it sort of changes the way you see that event because you're looking for the picture that you want to take. I would say showing up to the news Mm -hmm. and showing up to activism with a process in place to collect ideas and distill those ideas into um, more deliberate notions uh, in the form of a column changes the way you read Twitter. It changes the way you listen to uh, the news or a podcast because it makes me feel a little bit more active in my listening um, or, or, or reading because I'm saying, okay, I'm listening to this, but also like, what do I have to say about it? What can I, is this something that I can write on and respond to in my own venue? So, so that's, I, that, I said it earlier, but I really am, am grateful. Don't tell the courier that I would probably do it for free, but, but I'm grateful <laughs> for the chance to, to write that column every three weeks because it does change how I, um, how I digest the news. Indeed. Yeah, there is a sense in which it becomes a filter for how you process the world around you because you're always thinking about it from different angles or rolling it over in your in your mind. And and what comes out the other side is is different from what it would be if you were not involved in, in, in writing. I, I think that's really, I think that's a really helpful, uh, point. Now I, I have a question about, it's a kind of inside baseball, uh, question. One that I think people who don't do this, uh, that is to say, don't write opinion columns, don't really know or understand. Do you have any thoughts about how people might get connected to the community columnist or the, uh, the, the, the editor of the opinion page or something like that so that they might have a, a, a kind of point of access? Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of ideas on this. And, and before we go on, are you going to do show notes for? Uh, yes. For the, yes. All right. So I'll, I'll send you some links, um, Derek, for David Sparks' article on cooking ideas and a couple of the columns that I've written at least so that yes. people can check out um, – David's thoughts on, on how to cook ideas and in that process. So, um, but in terms of like getting connected to an opinions editor, I think, I think a lot of the local papers are going to have a page for submissions and, and they've got guidelines. You know, if you want to write a letter to the editor, I think it's 250 words. Um, mm-hmm. Columns are generally 750 words. And, and it may be just as simple as, you know, making your first column something that, you have domain expertise in and, and something that because of what you do on a daily basis gives you specialized access to, um, to a unique perspective, right? Um, right. And you can just do a blind submit uh, to that, 
to that newspaper, and and maybe it gets published. At maybe maybe it doesn't. Um, in terms of connecting with the actual editors, you know, I would say probably start following those people on Twitter, and and there's no mystery as to who's doing these things. Um, right at the paper and, and if they have a Twitter presence I would certainly start following them and engage with them on Twitter and, and slide into their DM so to speak and say I'd like to like to write on this this topic is that something you all would be interested in I guess what I would say is don't just leave it at the at the local papers don't just stop by shopping into the local paper if your community is lucky enough to have an alt weekly uh, certainly consider them, but also, you know, it used to be hard to get a column in the paper because there was limited newsprint, right? I mean, they had um, a limited amount of paper that they were going to ship out each day, but now with online stuff is one of the angles you want to take um, with your local paper, just publish it online. I don't care whether you publish it in the actual paper or not. Um, although I'm always surprised at how many people respond to the, to the paper copy of, of what I write, you know, people who email me having gotten the, the paper subscription rather than seeing about it online. But, right. but if they don't want to run it in the paper copy, can they run it as an online feature? Because, if you're not doing this, you know, as a career or for, for money, if what you're really interested in is getting your viewpoint heard and respected, you know, the benefit of writing an op-ed column versus a blog post is that there is some uh, credibility to having the link be a link at the Courier Journal rather than at your personal website, right? It, it signifies that another person at least has read it and thinks that it's uh, worth sharing right with the world and um, that person is a journalism professional and and so that the fact that it's appearing in in your local paper gives it a little bit more heft and is more likely to be shared online but but what I'm saying is if what you want to do is get your viewpoint shared and have that credibility, getting a link online is almost as good as getting it in the paper itself, as far as I can tell. And it gives you the link that you share with your audience on social media and allow them and encourage them to share it as well. So it doesn't have to appear in, in the newsprint itself in order to be successful, in order to accomplish some of your goals. It also doesn't need to appear in the local paper. Appearing in the Alt Weekly is, is good as well. And then if you, if you can't get it placed in either of those places, you know, you should consider other, other places that might have an audience that's interested in what you're writing about. For example, if I had something about the school to prison pipeline or mass incarceration here in Kentucky and the courier didn't want to run it, I would get it to Kentuckians for the Commonwealth to publish on their website um, to share with their community of 
of activists across the state because having it come through Kentuckians for the Commonwealth helps an organization that I care about by, by giving them content that is relevant to the work that they're doing. But also, you know, again, it's a link that signifies to your audience that it's not just you that thinks that this is worthwhile. It has some institutional backing as well. And for example, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth puts out like a 16-page newsletter to all of its members. I think it's once a month or once every two months. And if you can place your piece there, you're getting your ideas into the hottest hands in Kentucky in terms of people who are activists and and who sway uh, policymakers. So if it's about affordable housing, give it to your affordable housing nonprofit to put in their newsletter or publish on their blog. So there are all sorts of places besides your local paper that can help spread your unique perspective, but also gives you the credibility to have a second set of eyes on it and and having those eyes say, I'm not sure I speak, but having that person say this is something worth sharing, right? And something that's credible, uh, supported by facts and things like that. So so that's what I would say. And, and, and the other thing, just to keep, keep rambling here, is if there's nowhere else to put it, put it on your personal blog and or put it on Medium and share it out. You will find, I think, that writing, you, you open your own doors, like writing begets writing, I wrote some columns for the Courier that they liked, and now I write every three weeks. Um, I have my own personal blog that I I wrote on. I I sort of left out the um, the ten years of my life where I was writing for a personal blog, but but I think um, I'm I'm treating that as though it's like the last option. But it really shouldn't be the last option for some of the things that you do. I think that the more you write, the more you share of your writing online the more people see that you are thinking about things in a deliberate way, that opens up opens up doors. For example, like I've had a few people who run other publications say, if you ever want to write something else for us, like we saw this article in the Courier, like if you ever want to write something else or have longer ideas, like get in touch because we would be interested in that. And so so I think just being active and being being right being active as a writer and sharing those ideas, um, people will see it over time and will ask you to do other as a result of it, I think. What kind of things does an editor look for? The tip-offs that this is a piece of value to my readership. You know, I think the cynical answer to that is, is they're looking for polish and clicks, right? In other words, if you can deliver a product to an editor that requires very little editing, that makes their job a lot easier, right? And so they like that. The pieces that I deliver to the courier, for better or worse, they don't comb over them and say, I don't think that this paragraph works, right? Because for the most part, not saying they're works of art, but for the most part, they lead logically from one paragraph to another and they are grammatically correct and the right length, right? So that's the first thing I would say is you want to make their job as easy as possible. The thing that you ship to them should require no copy editing in, in the sense of is the comma placed in the proper place, right? Um, and so if that's something that you're 
that's not one of your core competencies, I think working with working with someone before you ship it to the op-ed editor to make sure that literally the uh, T's are crossed and I's are dotted properly is, is a good idea. But then the second thing they're looking for are clicks, right? They're looking for things that will drive people to their website and that will generate conversations online and be shared online. I started a blog in 2004. And back then, the way you got traffic to your website was through Google searches and from links to uh, from other blogs. Um, And so having a sidebar with, you know, links to other blogs of interest and things like that was was sort of the coin of the realm. I'll link to your blog if you link to my blog was was the way you drove traffic to your site. And now it's all driven by social media. I mean, I, I don't want to say 100%, but between Reddit and Facebook and, and Twitter, that's where all the traffic is coming from. And so you want to be thinking about writing a column that has for its thesis an idea that will be shared on social media. And so one of the pieces that I think did best for the courier, I have no idea, right? They don't share these numbers with me. But when we were talking about the tragedy of the commons notion, the phrase that I used in the in the piece itself was people who abuse the commons are behaving like jackasses. And the editor actually, like I wasn't sure whether the editor was gonna let that go or not. And um, late people may not know is that column writers don't pick the headline, the editor writes the headline. And, you know, that's good and bad for my, for my purposes. Sometimes I come up with headlines that are better than what, what I could have written. Um, sometimes I think they miss the point of the column with the headline, but, but they're the pros, right? But this editor said, I love the notion of jackasses and, and jackassery, and we're going to put it in the title. And you know, that column really did spread pretty widely, um, even though it's on this, like, pretty heady topic of the tragedy of the commons. The, the fact that it had a semi-curse word in the, in the title and had a sort of engaging thesis statement was um, something that I think really drove a lot of traffic to that that column so and people liked it and and so so i think that's what you want to be thinking about is what is the angle for the thing that i want to say that will not only say the thing that i want to say in a way that's respectable or respectful and clear but also that is like engaging and makes people want to read it and click right um which is which is what we should be aiming for anyway in media landscape where people have so many options for what they can do with their eyeballs. You really have to work hard to frame your issue in a way that breaks through that noise and it makes people spend the three to five minutes that it takes to read a column rather than continue scrolling through Twitter where they can talk to celebrities or the brands that they care about or or whatever. It, It has to be novel, it has to be engaging, and things like that. So so those are sort of the, the first two things that I think editors are looking for. And then I think the third thing would be like domain expertise. So I think I think it's really compelling, for example, if, if someone wants to write about healthcare, I think it's very helpful if 
they have a unique perspective, but as a result of a diagnosis that they have been struggling with or um, by virtue of their role as a hospital administrator in Eastern Kentucky or as a doctor working in a pain clinic, right? Um, something that, that gives them credibility. I mean, for better or worse, you know, having a law degree gives people think that I have domain expertise in areas of, of public policy and the law because I have a law degree. And so, so I think when you're first starting out, one of the things I would consider is what, what do I have domain expertise in that I have something to say about? Because that's, that I think would be compelling to editors. Like, for example, you once work in a payday lending facility, and now you're against payday lending because of what you saw there. That would be a compelling op-ed. It's got, it's got what the editor would call the hook. It's, an, it's a novel angle on an issue that draws people in. Right. And the headline writes itself, right? Like I used to, I used to be a loan shark, and now I'm not, or whatever it might be. I mean, I say the headline writes itself, but I can't <laughs> come up with one. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's something that people would click on. Oh yeah, just just out of curiosity. Exactly. What, what is that person's story? Well, so finally, what what do you what do you think are some things that people should avoid? What are what are some rookie mistakes that you think about it beforehand, you can skirt those and and appear more polished right off the bat. Right. The thing that I struggled with early or or not struggle with but that that I migrated away from is is couching my argument in terms of I think or I believe X, right? Like, I think we should X. Mm -hmm. Just say we should X because, first of all, it's already implied that this is what you think because you're writing an op-ed about it. But, but I think taking a – it reads better to people when, when you just say what you think rather than saying I think X, right? And that from a – I tend to, um, despite my loudmouthness, right? I, I tend to recognize that my perspective is just one of many perspectives, and my voice is just one of many voices. Just sort of from a personality standpoint, right? And and so I think some of the writing that I did early on tried to acknowledge that in a way that was boring and unnecessary. And I think it just makes for better writing when you take a position and and defend it rather than saying whether it's explicit or implicit in the words that you choose. I recognize that other people might not feel this way. Right. So so I think those are the things also like writing 101, right? Avoid the passive voice, because not only is it not only is it not clear who the actor is when you use a passive voice, but it's also not engaging writing. And, and again, like people's attention spans are incredibly short. And if you write a paragraph about public policy that contains passive voice and waffling language, they're going to check out like in the middle of your column. And so, you know, take a stance, make it very clear and own your words by using the active voice. So I think the thing more than anything, that's a, that's a long way of saying like, you have to avoid being boring. And I think in 750 words, sometimes, sometimes I lose some of the nuance of certain issues by avoiding, by, by having my, 
primary bias be avoiding being boring? To be fair, it's difficult to sort of trace all of the possible wrinkles in, in a complex idea in 750 words. So you have to sacrifice some nuance in the service of being clear and to the point as early as possible. Yeah. And I hear that in the comments sections of when people share my stuff on Facebook, somebody points out like one of the things that I left out or one of the counter arguments that I didn't address, you know, and I don't do this because I try not to engage in comment sections, but I really should have a text expander snippet that just says, dude, I had 750 words. (laughs) So, I mean, that just... I think that carries over from when I do like presentations on the law stuff that I do. My bias is so much in favor of, you know, keeping people's attention. And then after that, like if they pick up something about the topic that I'm either speaking or writing about, like that's great. But if you don't have their attention first, like you don't have anything. And so... That's why I bring a live chicken to most of my talks when I talk on the law stuff, because I want to release it in the crowd and, and let it run around um, right off the bat so that, so that they know that they need to pay attention. I don't do that, but one of these days I am going to do that. But that's, that's sort of what your op-ed writing should be too, right? And yes, it, you lose nuance when a live chicken is running around in your column. I, I think that's unfortunately one of the lessons that Donald Trump taught us, right? I mean, for all of his oafish in curiosity he is very good at keeping our attention isn't he 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 knows how to uh, how to invade our personal space yes yeah. to be sure well ben i want to thank you so much for taking the time uh to talk to us this was this was super helpful i think to people who have some sense that they should be doing this or that they that they want to do this they have something to say, but they just don't know quite how to go about it. And and the stuff that you've provided is 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 really really helpful. So I want to thank you. Uh, uh, it's my pleasure, Derek. And, and just to reiterate, like if you can get something in the local paper, do it right. But but if you can't, like put it on medium, put it on a local, uh, put it on your blog, because I really do feel like a lot of people have something valuable to say. And a lot of times, because of media, the way our media is structured, voices get left out of the conversation. And and don't let that happen with your voice, because um, if the local paper won't publish it, like you can write it somewhere else and get it out there and eventually eventually develop your own platform for for getting your voice out into into the conversation. I'm going to put information about how to follow Ben on social media and his web, or links to his website, and uh, we'll p- throw some uh, links to articles uh, in the show notes. So if you're interested in that, uh, take a look at the show notes. Thanks so much. Thank you, Derek. I want to thank my guest, Ben Carter of Ben Carter Law, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Community of Resistance. Until next time. <laughs>